So I'm going to just dive right into this message and say, how many of you enjoy cooking shows on TV? And there are these cooking shows that says, dinner in five minutes. And then they have everything for you, and they said, in five minutes, you could put a casserole together, and they put their ingredients together, they mix it, they cover it, and they put it in the oven, and five minutes, you have dinner. Why is that misleading, y'all? Why does it take longer? There's a word that starts with P. They got 20 people prepping that table before the TV, measuring out the paprika, the salt, the pepper, chopping up the meat. Everything is set. And that alone takes like an hour. And so Kathy will come home from work and she'll be like, that is such a lie. That is such a lie. Because the real hard part of cooking, the, arguably the harder part is the prep work that goes into the cooking. Good preparation is key to good cooking. Good preparation is also very important to God. It's so important to God that God, from 700 years before John the Baptist, began his preparation for John the Baptist to prepare the way for Jesus. And so God intended John the Baptist to prepare Jesus' coming and his ministry. So Luke quotes Isaiah 40, and he connects John the Baptist with what Isaiah wrote hundreds of years ago. Luke chapter 40, verse 4 says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Isaiah truly got a word from God because 700 years later, literally, a child grew up and he became strong and he lived in the wilderness and until he appeared publicly to Israel. Who is Luke talking about? John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the one that Isaiah was foreshadowing to foreshadow the coming Savior. And so, like we heard, he wore he, garments of camel hair. He ate locusts and honey. And before you start judging John the Baptist, you all know you ate weird stuff. Like, if you ate a beef jerky or a Slim Jim, do you see all the chemicals in there? We eat weird stuff. And Jesus even sets John the Baptist apart. Listen to what Jesus says about John the Baptist. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Wow. I mean, Jesus sees his own cousin. By the way, do you talk about your cousin that way? I know you love your cousins, but do you say, my cousin is the greatest human being ever to have lived? So if you ever wanted to see a person, what it looks like to live a life that's not shaped by fear of people, not shaped by peer pressure or keeping up with the Joneses, and just fully as devoted to God, John the Baptist. That's the person that you see on a human level. What does that look like? So John came with a message from God. And when we say that, we can't just gloss over that. This is a big deal that God gave John a message. John, it's time for you to go out of the wilderness and go back to Jerusalem. Because God hasn't spoken to Israel. He's been quiet for 460 years. Now, some of you text your children and family and friends. Be honest. You text them, how are you doing? And they don't text back for one minute. What happens to you? You start getting a little sweaty. They don't text you back for another hour. And what happens to you? You start freaking out. And then they're like, oh, I was hanging out with my friends. They're like, ugh. But can you imagine waiting for God's voice, but for 460 years? That's 
almost double the, the, the age of our country, and God hasn't spoken, and all of a sudden, he says, John, it's time. Go and tell my message. So the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, Luke 3, 2. And a commentator, William Barclay, says, John did not come with a new idea or his idea. He came with a message from God. So important. This is what churches need to have today. We don't need a great idea. We don't need a pastor to come up with something cool and trendy. We need the message from God. Can we say amen to that? Like, like we don't need a, we don't need a, you know, like someone who smooths out all these things. We need to say, God, what is your word for us? He gives it to us in scripture, and he still speaks to us. So, what an honor. Verse 4 in today's text, prepare the way of the Lord. This is Luke still quoting Isaiah about John. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. Just the word. What's the visual that Isaiah is using? What's the metaphor? Highway systems, roadway systems. Um, in 1996, I bought my first new car, real new car. Um, it was exciting. I couldn't afford it. I'm not sure why I bought it, but that's how you learn. I bought a brand new car, Ford Contour, teal green. It was that bright. It looked like an Easter egg on wheels. It was so ugly. And, you know, it's one of those things like, what was I thinking? And I washed it. I waxed it every other weekend. I was just obsessive about this car. And when you drive in New Jersey, it has winters. And one day I'm driving, and then all of a sudden you're like, you know, listen to your music, your tunes, you're enjoying it, you got a sunroof. You hear, bam! And I thought my car just, like, exploded or something. And what happened was I hit one of these guys. Can we show a picture? What is that? It looked just like this. These are potholes in New Jersey, winter areas. In wintertime, it snows, water seeps in, and then it gets hot, gets cold, gets hot, salt gets in, and then eventually the asphalt starts eroding, and you get these potholes. They're beautiful. My rim was dented. It looked like a circle with a little lit, like a smiley face on the edge. It was a pothole, and you could do an eyeball test. Would you rather drive on roads like this, or would you rather drive on roads, next slide, like that? And so when we see the visual that Isaiah is using, roadways are important for the coming king, and literally, do you know when the wheel was invented? They say 7,000 years ago around 5,000 B.C. And then roadways, according to Road and Track magazine, <laughs> roadways, because when it rained and it got muddy, wheels couldn't move and they got stuck. So some people in Mesopotamia and northern India continent said, let's make roads. And then the Roman Empire, they developed it perfectly in 4,000 B.C. And that's how we got roadways. Instead of paving, they used stones. And in time of Jesus, this language is so key because when the king says, I'm going to come and visit you, the town people would say, yay, and they would start filling in the roads literally. The tax, taxpayers, money. They would start getting the road condition ready so the king could have a smooth ride. Can you imagine how undignified it is? The king's coming. You know, hello, you know. I mean, I'm just picturing the crown flipping off and the king's like, hey, I'm the king. 
And so they want to minimize that so they pave everything and make it smooth. That's literally the visual that Isaiah wants us to have. Make straight the paths. The Lord is coming. So John the Baptist understood the preparation for the Lord is important. And the way John interpreted it was, if we're prepping for the Lord to come, there's one word that captures all of it, and it is repentance. For John, the prep work for the coming Lord is repentance. So verse 3, and John, he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this visual that we saw with the beach balls, that, that's a good snapshot of what a repentance looks like. It's a changing of the mind. It's a turning of the direction. It's giving up so that we could have what God wants for us. It's not take on religion. It's not be good. It's not try to be nice. It's you're a sinner. Surrender it because God has something for you for free. And so John is saying, hey, let's get baptized. And what's crazy about that is the only people that usually got baptized in Jesus' time were Gentiles, almost everybody in this room, if we converted to Judaism. But John is saying, no, everyone, even Jews, you need to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance was a key message of how we prepare for the road and the Lord. And so today's text reveals key things about repentance that I think is insightful to us. Verse 7 to 9, John is saying repentance is for all people, not just for the immoral, criminal, sinful, irreligious. It's for all people. Look at verse 7. Who is John the Baptist calling brood of vipers? He calls you brood of vipers. And so I was picturing this. Can you imagine a pastor comes for the first time on a Sunday, and he says, it's so nice to be with you this morning in La Mirada. I came from New Jersey, and it's such a joy to give you your word today. And he begins, you brood of vipers. <laughs> like, what a great sermon. I like this guy. He keeps it real. Um, Matthew 3, 7 tells us who the brood of vipers he's specifically pointing out. It wasn't the prostitutes, the tax collectors, or the criminals. Verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? He's specifically saying everyone get baptized, but in particular, who? The religious leaders. The Lord is coming, and he's calling everyone to repent, and arguably the religious church folks of that time are the ones that need to truly repent, he's saying. The elite, because there's a self-righteousness, there's a hypocrisy, and there's a greed that's burrowing in this leadership, and it's time to repent. Verse 8, he kind of goes on, he and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. This is John the Baptist telling these religious leaders. And don't say to yourself, you get a, off the hook because your father is Abraham. The Jews believe that if I am genetically a Jew and my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was Abraham, I'm good, no matter what I do. And John is saying, no, my friends. Your hereditary genes and lineage has no bearing on your sin. You need to repent. And today, it, it looks like this. Titles, church positions, your experience at church. I'm a pastor. Nope. 
It's you as well. Well, my dad was a minister. He was a missionary too, blah, blah, blah. Nope, that has no bearing. You need to repent. And so just because someone in your family is a strong Christian, just because you went to church your whole life, John the Baptist says, sorry, you're not off the hook. We all need to come before God and repent. So repentance forces us to humble ourselves and humble herself and himself, and humbling oneself opens a door for the Savior to come and do his work and save us. So we're not contributing to the salvation. We're preparing the road so that we can be saved. John Baptist continues, Repentance is far more than feeling bad about sin. I think religious language is, I repent, I feel so bad. And John the Baptist pushes it to the next level. It's a change that leads to an outward difference. Verse 9, bear fruit in keeping, verse 8 and 9, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. According to Jesus, bearing fruit, this is Jesus' insight. What you do on the outside is always a byproduct of what controls you on the inside of your heart. This is what Matthew 15, 9, Jesus says, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, false witness, theft, slander. Jesus is saying, I know you because I made you, and here's what I know about you. The way you act on the outside is always determined by what is ruling and reigning in your heart at this very moment. So if I love money, I'll be nice, cordial, but what drives me, what decide, decisions I make, what, 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 what makes me go get them is this love for money. If I love feeling powerful and important, what drives me on the outside as a result of that is control, just force, manipulation. And Jesus is saying, I know you too well. Repentance starts on the inside rule of your heart, and it will lead to the outer fruit. So, when asked by all people, what then shall we do? John the Baptist gives clear instructions. Listen to this. He just doesn't say, say sorry for your sins. He says, say sorry for your sins and see how it changes your life. Verse 11, three examples. Your repentance should make your heart compassionate to others. Verse 11, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. So like, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to give you everything. And so we have wealth and we have goodness. We have blessings. And if someone is in need, we say, Ugh, but I don't want to give it up. I kind of want to save up my money. He's saying, that's not repentance. If you've been greedy, let your surrender be affected in your fruit by being generous. Verse 12, he was approached by tax collectors. What shall we do? And the principle here is your repentance should make your heart bear conscience for the greed of wealth. Look what he says. Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Tax collectors used to take a lot more than they were supposed to collect with the power of Roman Empire behind them. And when they said, what shall we do? He says, repent and stop manipulating and swindling your people. So church, when we say let's repent, we're saying we confess the sin, but we also change our ways. Last one, verse 14 even military people came up to him and said, what shall we do? He says, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. 
In other words, our repentance should make us content with what we already have. Repentant people are saying, God, I don't have a lot, but I'm thankful. I'm grateful. And we don't go use violence and manipulation to gain more. And so it's so practical that repentance is not just how you feel, but it is a true change in direction. And Jesus is preparing his way into our hearts. So why is John the Baptist doing this? Because when you prepare and repent, how does that make you feel? When you, when you start recognizing your sins, how does that make you feel? For example, Jesus, I watch too much TV, I'm lazy, and I lie to everyone I know. I, I see this. And then after I pray that, I go, I'm a pretty good guy. Do you feel like that? Like, boy, man, I just stole from my boss. I told him I worked 50 hours, but I only worked 10. <laughs> but Jesus, I know that's not right, but I confess to you. And do you walk away saying, but I'm a good person? The point of this, what does this do? It points us to the need for God's mercy. Repentance makes us realize, I can't save myself. I need a save viewer. Uh, this past Monday, I went to my daughter's middle school. They invite me once in a while, and they say, hey, can you come to the Bible Fellowship? I love going to it. And so this week, I said, what should I talk about? And my daughter told me what everyone asked. They said, what is different about Christianity from every other religion? I was like, oh, I love that topic. So I went in there, and I got to be careful because I can't destroy other religions, not that I want to, but I, I think kids genuinely want to know, why are you different from every other religion? And I said, here, here it is, kids, two things. Are you ready? One is, we don't believe in a teaching. We believe in an event, resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is a single most unique thing. If you don't have that, we're no different. And I give him evidence of why we believe there's a resurrection. For that, there'd be another sermon. But the second thing I said was, I studied religion in seminary, in youth ministry, on my own. And here's the one thing that stands out. You ready for this? Christianity is literally the only religion in the whole world, hundreds of religions, that has this little word called grace. You cannot earn it. You cannot pay for it. You cannot work at it, you could only receive it as a gift. It's the only religion. Buddhism, Baptist, Buddha, not Baptist, <laughs> Woo! scratch that from the sermon. Um, Buddhist, Islam, Hinduism, all of them, it's all about this works, and then God will bless. But Christianity is, you can't do anything. You could only receive this as a gift. And so, John the Baptist was asked this question, are you the Christ? And he, ans he answers with this profound good news. I baptize you with water, so I could just sprinkle anybody I want in the Jordan. But he who is mightier than I is coming. I can't even tie his sandals, basically. He will baptize you with what? Holy Spirit and fire. I can tell you this. I've baptized many people in water. I don't have the human power to blast the Holy Spirit and fire upon you. What is John the Baptist saying? Salvation, true salvation and forgiveness has to be done to you by the one who is called Christ. See, this Advent season, it's not religion we're trying to strive for. It's 
refocusing our hearts and our lives to Jesus, the merciful Savior who can save us. That's why John the Baptist doesn't teach religion. He's saying, I'm pointing you to the hope that is coming. And he's our hope even for his second coming. He's our joy now. And there are potholes in our lives right now that keep him from getting there. It could be unconfessed sins. It could be pride. It could be, I don't know, insecurity. Make way for the coming king. Fill in those potholes. Declutter your life from the non-essentials and remove the obstacles for the Lord to come into your life and renew you. Last thing, John the Baptist always talks about Jesus with this kind of love. Listen to these words. Again, I don't say this about my own brother or my sister or cousins. John the Baptist says, he is mightier than I. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. By the way, husbands, go home and untie your wife's sandals today and like massage your feet. And they're going to be like, What's, what got into you? Because that's how rarely we do it today. And John the Baptist is saying, I can't even do that to him. John 3, 30, 31, John the Baptist says this, He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. And he who comes from heaven is above all. And what he's saying is this. He's saying, don't just use Jesus. Love Jesus. Adore Jesus. Don't just want his blessings, but crave him. Desire him. And so when Kevin was here with the beach ball that said Jesus, God wasn't just giving him ambiguous love. He was giving him Christ. And the beauty of Christmas is we don't get the benefits of God. We get God. Make way. It's going to change your life. It's going to get you back on the right path. It is not religion you need. It is this Savior. And verse 6, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is for all people. This is why this is good news. And this is why the church rejoices in this season and the church goes out. Friends, are you preparing? Are you ready? Have you decluttered your life? And maybe even right now you're thinking about all the things you need to do, but what if you said, God, may there be no obstacle between us. And let me clear this junk off my chest. Do your work in me. Do your work in our church. And be glorified as you reign as king who comes and rules my heart and this life. Let's pray together.